are. Now, turn the lights low, Robin. You turn me on. I'm a radio. A few hours ago, Japan signed unconditional surrender to the Allies. Nous disons deux fois, Italie est restée. British and American have made the atomic bomb at last. Now, look here, everything's ready, so don't try to stop me. A new world would be born. Radio is part of our everyday lives. This simple but powerful medium has shaped our modern culture. It has built communities and changed the way we consider the world around us. Radio gives us a voice. To Radio at Love is a series of letters from iconic broadcasters, community practitioners, civil rights activists and artists. Each one tells their own story of how radio has impacted on their lives and the lives of others. Theo Dorgan is a poet, prose writer, editor, scriptwriter, translator and sailor. He has made his home in Dublin for many years. He's a frequent commentator on Irish public cultural affairs for RTE Radio, BBC Radio and PBS in the United States. And he's been presenting literature programmes on radio for over 25 years. This is Theo's letter to radio. Dear Radio, when I was a child, left to my own devices, one of my favourite things to do was turn on the radio, then swing it around back to front and watch the valves gradually light up. They gave off a spectral kind of subdued red glow, and to this day I can remember the very particular smell of dust heating up on those half-silvered glass valves. The default setting in our house was Radio Erden. But what I liked to do, once the set was fully operational, was to reach around to the front blindly and slowly spin the serrated wheel at selected stations. I loved the noises I could conjure from the air, the screech of static, the sound of German or Dutch or British English emerging into clarity from the fuzz and boom as you approached and then locked onto a given station. This was real magic as if I was listening to electricity speak itself in all the voices of the world. There in our dining room, face in so close to the Bakelite radio that I could feel the heat of the valves on my cheek, I was able to reach out through the cosmos, it seemed to me, bring down the voices, the radiations and the electric truth of existence out of the marvellous, enormous void. There was no back to that radio set. It was a small cave seen by a giant and I would gaze into that cave, conjure a world of voices and music out of its depths, as if I were an interstellar explorer, or that philosopher imagined by Plato, of whom I would read when much older. Radio made the world vast, mysterious and homely, all at the same time. Homely because, of course, I was at home. I was the operator, conjuring this magic from the air, filling the house with exotic voices, music mournful and trite, familiar and strange. At first, when I was very young, I thought that all the music I heard on that radio was being played live. 
I would imagine musicians, perhaps in their shirt sleeves, perhaps in massed orchestral ranks, pointing themselves and their instruments at a microphone, anxious to reach their invisible audience. I would imagine the singers, the men immaculately suited, perhaps even in hats, the women in exotic dresses, leaning into the microphones, eager to connect with the anonymous listener out there in the vast dark of the world. And now my memory, editing itself and pushing me forward, shows me an image of myself under the bedclothes with a small transistor, moving the fragile box of plastic this way and that, in pursuit of the elusive signal from Radio Luxembourg, the frequency that put an entire world generation on the same wavelength. There's a whole lot of rockin' and rollin' That's colourful radio For all that's worthwhile, your radio dial is on Radio Luxembourg. The emerging world of rock and roll sent its throb and pulse into the ionosphere so that the world as we imagined it went spinning through the halls of space wrapped in gossamers and flashes of radio colours. One world made one by radio, one music to bind us all. Radio, when I knew it first, was magic pure and simple. In every program I've ever made since, or contributed to, I've tried to remember that. Jane Rogers is a novelist and playwright for BBC Radio 4. Jane developed the Uganda radio series Macamira, which was dubbed the African Archers. The aim of Macamira, or Making Friends, was to address issues such as domestic violence, gender equality, corruption and problems arising out of bride price customs. Macamira has proved to be a powerful and effective behavioural change tool for reaching large numbers of people in rural Uganda. This is Jane's letter to radio. Dear Radio, you can go anywhere. A compound, a field, a kitchen, a school, a bus. You can sneak in through windows and under closed doors and tell stories. In Tararo, eastern Uganda, we wanted to tell stories about women whose lives are affected by bride price customs. Girls are often removed from school and pushed into early marriages to gain income from bride price. If custom dictates that a man pay a ruinous amount for his bride, then he's liable to expect her to be highly productive, both in the fields and in childbed, producing at least one child for each cow paid. The effects of bride price customs on both men and women are dehumanising. And the charity Mifumi sets out not just to educate people about this and the related issues of women's health and education, but also to offer refuge and practical assistance to abused women. You, Radio, were our chosen medium for reaching out to as many ears as possible in a rural area where there's no electricity and low adult literacy. We assembled a team of writers, five writers, new to radio, and visited the villages to hear women's stories, then spent a fortnight weaving storylines together and inventing characters who could make us laugh as much as taking their problems seriously. Teko, the village head, with his rampaging bull and his clever, troubled schoolteacher wife, Kindly Maria, who advises on other women's problems in confidence, 
that harbours a secret passion for the local priest. Teenager Posh, who's been dragged away from the bright lights of Kampala and hates primitive village life until she meets one particular boy. Researching and writing for you, Radio, took me into a new community, brimming with fantastic and heartbreaking stories, and set me working with talented, inventive Ugandan writers to produce our first ten episodes. Welcome back to Awendo Village. It's a Sunday morning. Grandma Posh is all excited as she goes to see Catherine to tell her what the women's group have decided. But will Catherine share in her excitement? Recording those episodes in the village with a local cast provided unforgettable moments. Look at me. Sound recordists cowering behind a farmer as he tried every trick to get the silent bull to snort or moo or do anything other than stand placidly silent in the hot sunshine. Fiercely intent girls in the local primary school practicing their karate moves while the mic picked up the rhythmically controlled breathing and thump of bare feet on the hall floor. The rousing singing of the village women, led by an 82-year-old. Making radio crept into a whole community and revealed storytellers, actors, singers and technicians. Once broadcasting, you find friends everywhere, radio. So, Makomere was developed and continued for more than 40 episodes, reflecting the lives of your listeners, showing that change is possible. A medium for entertainment and education. A medium that draws us together. Tolan Nyata is a journalist and trainer for Pamaja FM, a radio station based in Kibera in Nairobi in Kenya. Kibera has a population of one million, making one of Africa's largest slums. The residents of Kibera live in small metal shacks. Most have no toilet facilities and only 20% have electricity. They share two water pipes. Pamaja FM was formed in 2007 to empower the youth of Kibera through education and information and it now transmits over the city of Nairobi. It gives voice to citizens who are otherwise disempowered and keeps residents informed about issues which dramatically impact upon their daily existence. This is Tola's letter to radio. Dear Radio, the thirst for information makes you the people's best friend in Kibera. How you have saved my people. It is now easier for the people of Kibera to get information which they need to make their lives better. You run campaigns on free medical camps which deal with critical sicknesses. Malaria, tuberculosis, HIV campaigns are run through you. You have given a platform for the people living with HIV to air their views and their issues without fear of stigma and discrimination. Local and international organizations running different campaigns targeting Kibera use you as a partner. You have improved the health of the Kibera community. You have given the youth an avenue to get information to empower themselves. You help in mobilizing residents for Kibera cleanup campaigns and meetings by the local administration. 
the partnerships by microfinance organizations that provide low interest loans through you have provided jobs and income to youth and women. Now, most of the issues of the area have to pass through you for credibility. Everyone trusts and believes in you. Politicians, government officials, and any other person who would want to speak to the Kibera community use you for their message or campaign to be supported by the people. You have provided a platform for discussing issues that have a potential for violence. You have even gone further to provide amicable solutions. This has encouraged peaceful coexistence between residents who now have something to look forward to. Kibera residents are now economically empowered, healthy, informed, and entertained. You have given them a voice which they never thought they would have. Much love to you. Hello, everybody. This is Station Debunk, the station that debunks war propaganda, war hysteria, war profiteers, and war criminals. We are on the air every night, 8.30 p.m. Central War Time, operating on 7.2 megacycles. We'll start our program in about one minute. Keith Somerville, a senior research fellow in the Institute of Commonwealth Studies, teaches journalism at the University of Kent. He has been a BBC radio journalist for 28 years. He has published widely on conflict and foreign intervention in Africa, Southern African politics and African media coverage. His book, Radio Propaganda and the Broadcast of Hatred, Historical Developments and Definitions, gives a detailed account of the development of propaganda and the way radio transformed the delivery and impact of propaganda, making possible the use of hate broadcasting as a weapon. This is Keats' letter to radio. Dear Radio, in many ways you've been the soundtrack of my life. As a teenager, I listened to music. John Peel, little Nicky Horn on Capital Radio with the programme Your Mother Wouldn't Like It. And in between, I'd hear the news. And I gradually got hooked on the news. And I'd listen to the music, but also listen in for the news. But you've also been my work, my obsession. You're one of the best ways to communicate with people, one of the best ways of getting news information and education to people in far-flung areas of the world. You come into people's homes, into their cars. I can even listen to you in the shower. When I worked in radio, I always thought what I was trying to tell people, what they were going to hear. That's the important thing about radio. Radio in many ways reaches people in a more emotive way than I think TV does. This is its plus side. What makes it your friend, the friend that comes into your house and tells you things? Hopefully your trusted friend. But it can also be a dangerous thing. I learned very early on at the monitoring service where I worked that radio can do things other than just inform. It can try to convince, to propagandise. I listened to radio at the monitoring service in the early 80s, during the later stages of the Cold War. I listened to Soviet radio. It was trying to propagandise on behalf of a Soviet view of Marxism and of the world. Their output had news in it, but the news was from a particular viewpoint. It put across its ideas, it put across its theories, and it put across its approach to the world. That was propaganda. But it was open and clear and for a purpose. 
I also listened to Radio RSA, the external service of apartheid radio in South Africa. That was much more devious. It tried to present itself like the BBC World Service, as a trusted friend giving accurate news, but it was slanted. A little news was straight, but most had a slant to it, particularly news broadcast to Africa, Europe and North America. It was trying to undermine the independent African states, trying to drag the names of leaders like Kenneth Kaunda and Saretsi Kama through the mud, trying to influence people, trying to get people to lose trust in their governments. It was trying to propagandise, it was trying to influence, but it was trying to do it covertly. Propaganda has been part of radio almost since its birth. In the early years of radio in America, the appalling Father Charles Coughlin, a Catholic priest, used radio to spread messages of hate against Jews, against blacks, against anyone he didn't like. He was a messenger of hate. Even Goebbels admired Coughlin. When he was head of radio and propaganda in Germany, German radio was the agenda setter for hatred. It broadcast the most appalling hatred and slanders against the Jews. Any world leader, like Churchill or Roosevelt, who stood against Germany, they were derided as puppets of the Jews. The things it said about the Russians and Slavs after the invasion of the Soviet Union were terrible. The Germans used radio to incite hatred and contempt and they used it to create the agenda for the Holocaust. In Rwanda in 1993 and 1994, of any Hutu politician who did not agree with the extreme Hutu power ideology, and it preached murder, mass murder and genocide. When people ask me, good listeners, why do I hate all the Tutsi? I say, read our history. The Tutsi were collaborators for the Belgian colonists. They stole our Hutu land. They whipped us. Now they have come back, these Tutsi rebels. They are cockroaches. They are murderers. Rwanda... During the genocide, after the 6th of April 1994, it told people to go out and kill. At times, who to kill, where to kill them, where to find them, where to set up your roadblock. This doesn't mean that radio is evil. You're not an evil thing. But it means you can be used for evil. Just as you can be used for good, to spread news, to reunite families after disasters. You can be great, you can entertain, you can inform, you can educate but you can be dangerous, so be careful. My final message for radio is keep doing what you're doing, but watch out, people can use you in a very bad way. This is a special broadcast for Amark as part of the 16 Days Violence Against Women program. Hello, from Radio Paris. Margareta Darcy is an activist for human rights and a member of Armark, the World Association of Community Radio Broadcasters. She's been making radio and film for almost 50 years. Margareta is a founder member and chairperson of Women in Media and Entertainment. This is Margareta's letter to radio. 
Dear Radio, the first word that flashes into my mind when I think of radio is imagination and then wonder. Imagination wanders through many different caves of the mind, unbounded by physicality, radio likewise. We can neither see physically the person at the microphone, nor the sounds to which we are listening, any more than the person at the microphone can see or hear her listeners. Each of us remain private. We are public at the same time. The only connection between us, and this is where I get very excited, you have to understand that naturally enough I'm a kind of missionary, a fanatic, about getting every woman who wants to eventually to have her own private little parrot station in her own home or under a bush. So you must expect hyperbole. The only connection between us is the voices travelling the airwaves. Wonder. The wonder is that you don't know who's listening or why or how they came to listen or even if anyone is listening at all. So the human contact from broadcaster to listener is entirely random, unpredictable and uncontrolled. It is thanks to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II of the UK that I first discovered this wonder when I was locked up with 23 other women. We were only allowed out for half an hour each day and then only two at a time. So the only way we communicated was by shouting to each other from the cells. We told stories, sang, had political arguments, but we never saw each other. Later, the regime softened until one day we could all take a half an hour recreation together. How shy we all were that first day. And yet through closed cell doors, we were so relaxed. When I got out, the experience had so fascinated me that I decided I would have a private radio in my own home. But how to get one? I hadn't the foggiest idea about technology of radio, but someone got in touch with me with someone who was building a transmitter. I met this person in London outside the South African Embassy where there was a 24-hour picket protesting against apartheid. My contact had learned his skill from a book. Radio is my bomb. An old anarchist living in Wales wrote it. So, now I was in business, with suitable credentials to begin my new life of wonder and imagination. All the women, myself included, were excluded from the legitimate airwaves from the state. But here was true freedom. Rosemary Day is the Head of Department of Media and Communication Studies in Mary Immaculate College, University of Limerick. Rosemary is editor of The Bicycle Highway, celebrating community radio in Ireland. In this book, she explored how radio can help build communities and be a means to connect people within these communities, enabling them to speak for themselves. This is Rosemary's letter to radio. Dear Radio, 
you have been my companion through life. An old friend who was always there, not always attended to, mind you, but one who is forgiving, enduring, and one who has changed with me as I go through life and as life changes around me. You're adaptable, accessible, you're cheap, you're immediate, and you're trustworthy. Sometimes I don't know how I know things, but it's because you or somebody on you has told me. You're always on, although you're not always listened to. My earliest memories of radio are of running home from National School and listening to the Kennedys of Castle Ross with my mother. I think we believed that they were real people, much the same as my grandparents who lived down the country. I remember the drama of listening to the radio with my grandparents. When it was time for the one o'clock news, everything and everyone stopped. And even though the wireless itself, the great big brown box, was sitting on a shelf in the kitchen, we would all troop into the good room where the speaker was sitting on another shelf and listen in absolute silence while we were told what was going on in the world. Mind you, when we got home to Dublin, we kids used to listen to Radio Luxembourg. And then, as Pirate Radio took off, we listened on our transistors to the local radio as, as, as we, we saw it. We knew the people who were on, and it was a very exciting time. When I went teaching in the early 80s in Kulak, every second boy sitting in front of me either had his own radio station in his attic or his garden shed, or he was working in his neighbours and his friends. I came across community radio in a shed out in a suburb of a western suburb of Sydney where there was huge poverty, uh, alcohol and drug abuse, terrible problems, racism, all sorts. And here were a small group of people working literally out of a garden shed who were actually making a difference to the lives um, of their community, to people within it. It's not exactly as Bertolt Brecht expected in 1932 that every radio set would become a transmitter. It's more powerful than that because every person has the right to go on air and to speak their mind. Radio has transformed many, many lives in many powerful ways and will continue to do so in this digital age. Yours, with much love, Rosie Day. Eighteen fifty seven one five eight one five. Hello, good afternoon, and you're very welcome to Live Line. Five one double five one is our text number. When the new national driver license centres open, Joe Duffy is an iconic Irish broadcaster, a Jacobs Award winner, and the current presenter of Live Line, which is broadcast on RT Radio One. Joe is a household name in Ireland. His radio show takes the pulse of the Irish nation each day and often deals with highly controversial issues. This is Joe's letter to radio. The theme music of the first radio programme I listened to was The Typewriter, the signatory tune of Dear Sir or Madam, the weekly feedback programme on the only Irish radio station in the 1960s, Radio Erin. Each Saturday evening after our weekly bath, myself and my five siblings would sit in a row, all freshly buffed to light pink, scented by life by soap, and gaze up at the pilot radio, the wireless, as we called it, in its eagle-like nest on its specially built and decorated shelf, awaiting the familiar music and the languorous tones of the presenter John O'Donovan, as he, with the aid of actors, read listeners' letters on the topics of the week. Radio gave us so much. 
The power of radio is its transcendent nature. The human condition allows us to empathise. There is no greater conduit for this than radio. Live, instant, immediate, filling the space inside and outside our heads with images, emotions, memories. Radio is spacious. Radio is generous. It allows us to listen alone while doing something else and speaks directly to us often giving us unbridled insights, education and entertainment, striking a chord when we realise that our concerns are those of others. Radio not only welcomes us into other worlds, it invites us into the lives of others, the minds of others, the hearts, souls and imaginations of others. Radio is honest, the direct, live, human voice, the sounds, the hesitations, the silence, communicates directly, instantly and empowers It also allows us to participate, interact, engage and tell stories and it can give a platform to the powerless. A national phone-in show like Liveline works as public service when it can hold a large national audience that feels comfortable speaking on the phone and who in Ireland doesn't and engages. Radio is deeply human, allowing us to unburden, to dilute, to share, to empower. It is user-friendly, and my oh my, do we in Ireland use it to our heart's content, pulling, shoving, interrupting, interfering, interjecting. Transcendence allows us to deeply appreciate and empathise with the life forces of others, is the power of radio. While I might have an idea every day of where Liveline will start, I never know where it will end in laughter or tears, driven, powered, propelled through 75 minutes of the simple act of the human voice. Radio is free, no other medium feels more lovingly owned by its users than the wireless. And it freely gives of itself. It owes us nothing and is proud of it. We owe it everything. The mighty man of Wexford has it. He's 60 yards out from the goal right now. Drops it again. Tries to get it over Barry's head, but Barry has it again in the air. Well, there's a, a streaker on the ground now. He must be a Kilkenny man because he's quite happy with the situation right now. Michal O'Murray Hurtick has been one of Ireland's best known voices on radio. An Irish Gaelic Games commentator, his career has spanned six decades and he is regarded as the voice of Gaelic Games. Born in Dingle in 1930, he began broadcasting in the Irish language at the age of 18, covering minor GAA matches. He developed his own style of commentary and his accent is unmistakably that of a native Irish speaker. He is a true lover of sport and it is reflected in the enthusiasm he brings to matches. His unusual turn of phrase has made him a much-loved broadcaster. On September 16, 2010, he announced his retirement from broadcasting. This is Mihal's letter to radio. A radio yill is deslout that more than 70 years after our paths first crossed. Prior to that, I had neither heard nor even heard mention of radio. Then, one Sunday autumnal evening, I went with my father on a visit to a neighbour's house about a half a mile away. The first thing I noticed on arrival was the big number of people both inside and outside the Sheehy home in Ballantoggett. We managed to get inside the door and naturally there was plenty of talk racing at all angles throughout the kitchen. But it was not of the harvest or the weather but of football, mostly Kerry football. 
Before long, a great silence took control as Mikey Sheehy moved gently towards a strange-looking box in the corner. Whatever magic he conjured by turning the knobs on the contraption, a hissing, crackling sound came forth, preceding the clear voice of somebody in an animated state. I had not the learning then to compare the situation to a seance, but to me it was magic of immeasurable proportions. In fact, it was Michal O'Hare broadcasting an All-Ireland final. That magic has stayed with me ever since. And in my opinion, you, the humble radio, will continue to be the high king of communicators. Which of the others can be engaged with while simultaneously allowing other tasks to be processed, be that cutting the grass, cooking, climbing a mountain, driving, etc., etc.? You are simply unique and destined for immortality. To me, there was something magical also about how fate brought me into close association with you within a decade of the revelation I experienced in Ballantoggart on that autumn day so long ago. On a spring day in 1949, I and others ambled along in the spirit of adventure to Croke Park to undergo auditions for a commentator on Gaelic Games for you, then Radio Ayrn, and the son daughter of 2RN, Ireland's first radio service, and the world pioneer of live sports broadcasting in its baptismal year of 1926. As it happened, I was luckily chosen to be that commentator, and 11 days later, I was in the green broadcasting box in Croke Park, relating the twists and turns of the Railway Cup football final to your listeners and devotees. The experience was really magical to me that day and remained so until my retiral 62 seasons later. An old saying states, Ni Cooperation begets great power. And since the birth of your grandfather to RN, its cooperation with the GAA and local communities has made the cultural Irish sports a product that is majestic and a good tonic for national morale. Gomaratu, good egomeg mock make pillabichlete fuichor. Michele Boychus, Mihalo Merhertig. Pat Herbert is the director of the Oldie Hurdy Gurdy Museum of Vintage Radio in the Mortella Tower Hoth. Pat has been collecting radios for over 40 years. This is Pat's letter to radio. Ah, oh, dear radio. My love of radio began in the west of Ireland in the year of 1947. My parents came back from America in Christmas 36, and I was born March 37. But 1947 was a momentous year because the first radio came into our village. Neighbours of ours acquired this radio and... 
news spread very quickly that uh, there was a match to be broadcast all the way from the polo grounds in New York. Cavan and Kerry played in the All-Ireland football final for the first time outside of Ireland in 1947. So all the neighbours assembled to this cottage where the power of the radio, powered by batteries and an aerial wire up on a tree at uh, probably 50 or 60 feet, all the neighbours gathered into the house. We as children were left in the front garden. The windows were open. Everything came out into the night. Everywhere was in darkness because of the time difference with New York. And my God, when we saw this, my parents described it as a radio, the neighbours described it as a wireless. We described it as a magic box with bulbs and valves and it lit up the whole kitchen of the house. Then my hollow hair came in with a commentary from America. You could hear every kick of the ball, every thud and every shout in the crowd and we thought as children we thought this was absolutely magic. And then Doonan of Cavan comes in and clears out a magnificent clearance. Back come Kerry again. Eddie Dowling dodges and battles his way past the Cavan defence and sends a rasper to the net. It brought light into our lives because it lit up it, it lit up the whole area around it. And as you can imagine, after the war, in a village there was no electricity, no money for paraffin oil for a lamp or whatever. This changed our whole life completely, and certainly for me anyway. And uh, shortly after, I started collecting radios. And mostly, I think, in the 60s, when the transistor radio came in. The transistor took over. It was the new model of radio. And it could be made ever so small. And it took over from the large valve sets and whatever. So I collected, started collecting transistor radios and radios of all type, from the very earliest crystal sets up to the more recent ones. And that led me to eventually open up a museum up in Hoth, where there are several hundred radios. The museum is housed in the Martello Tower and it's the centre of communications in Ireland since 1852 when the first cable came in there from Europe. It tells the story of Ireland's communication history, as I say, since 1852 up until the present time. Oh, thank you, Radio, for giving me such pleasure all those years and I just hope I can pass it on to others when they come and visit the museum. Simon Marr is a lecturer, managing director of 8radio.com and a regular contributor on Irish Radio. He's the former managing director of Phantom FM, a one-time pirate station but now a licensed radio station in Dublin. This is Simon's letter to radio. Dear Radio, My first memories of radio go back to listening with my dad to BBC Radio 2 more than 30 years ago while he listened to the sports results. I had no idea how all the information came together, but I was fascinated by it. I listened to the Irish Pirates of the 1980s with a particular fascination for Sunshine and Capital Radio, as well as some of the smaller stations around my hometown of Dunleary. Fast forward to 1990 and on work experience I got a gig reading the news on Radio Dublin, then based in a bockety house in Inchicore. I was a pretty terrible newsreader and I knew it but it gave me an in at a radio station and from there I went on to run a pirate station from my very own back garden called Coast FM and by 1997 the beast that was Phantom FM had been born. From the start I loved not just the music I got to play but getting to talk to people and build some sort of a relationship with them through radio. 
For years I did the late night slots on Coast, Phantom and elsewhere and loved every minute of it. Even now there's nothing like late night radio and the special bond that exists between presenters and listeners after dark. I was lucky in Phantom that I was part of a bunch of people who loved at least one aspect of radio, whether that was music or promoting bands or even just the sound of their own voices. This took us from the Sandyford Garden Shed of early Phantom to a converted apartment above Whelan's in Wexford Street where Pirate Phantom hit its peak in the early 2000s. Dublin was full of great bands like The Frames, Brando, National Prayer Breakfast, Sack, Turn and more and we were getting to play them. The response was great and the buzz I got out of radio was huge. In 2004, we eventually moved on from the pirate world and got a license for Phantom, which won itself the PPI Award for Best Music Station the first year we were on air, and all was great. We were the littlest of the little guys, but we were battling, and sometimes we were even winning. By 2010, the economy had gone over a cliff, as had the advertising revenue that was the lifeblood of the radio station. The studio was like a refuge during this period. I was still loving the radio element of what I was doing on Phantom, but the world outside our little soundproof studio was awful. The last weeks after I found out I was being let go from Phantom were among the saddest I had ever known. Despite being determined to wallow in permanent misery, I got a call from RTE's Arena Art Show to come in and do some music reviews. Being back in that soundproof room just felt right and it reminded me why I loved radio so much. The bug was still there though, so in March of this year I launched 8radio.com. The scale is small, almost full circle back to an upstairs room in Whelan's again, but the feeling is still there. It's not easy. Radio has moved on so much since the last time I was involved in a startup. But when I go in and I close the door in our little soundproof room on a Sunday night and talk to the internet, I know I'm home. Knud Auferman is a German artist whose primary medium is radio. He was the station manager for Resonance FM. Based in London, Resonance FM, a registered charity, is the longest-running radio art station in the world. Knut now co-produces the project Mobile Radio, which investigates alternative means of radio production. His work has been broadcast in 12 countries and 28 different radio stations, and he is a founder member of the International Radio Network of Independent Cultural Radio Stations. This is Knut's letter to radio. Dear Radio, These were some of the names that glowed on the shortwave dial of my father's valve radio. As a child I listened to the faint voices that came out of this wooden box and it was clear that some of them emanated from even further away than the Eurocentric dial would have me believe. Later, the Krimi am Samstag, a long-running series of Saturday afternoon avant-garde crime radio dramas on WDR, opened my ears to the imaginative worlds radio could create. In 1929, Bertolt Brecht beamed his work Der Flug des Lindbergs through the ether, a play on Lindbergh's solo crossing of the Atlantic. The orchestra played music, especially composed by Kurt Weil and Paul Hindemith, and the main character, Charles Lindbergh, was played by... You! Yes, that's right! 
The listeners at home were asked to read the text out loud alongside the music that came from their radios. The first time I witnessed firsthand the magic of making radio was when I entered the studio of Resonance FM at the South Bank Centre in London in 1998. Here a group of artists and experimental musicians had created a radical alternative to mainstream radio and it continues to strive on London's FM dial today. Bertolt Brecht's demand to turn the radio into a two-way communication device is put into practice by Resonance FM through the most simple act of removing the fence between radio listeners and radio makers. Their invitation and challenge to come and make radio in an atmosphere of complete freedom has been taken up by thousands of people so far. The station's credo is that every person has at least one good radio show in them. Inspired by the experiences at Resonance FM, I set up Mobile Radio together with fellow radio artist Sarah Washington. Our mission is to seek out new forms of radio by taking radio production out of the studio environment. Since 2005, we have broadcast live from unusual places such as the Atomium in Brussels, a laundrette in Stockholm, a medieval tower in Cologne, a backyard in Zurich, museums and galleries in Bremen, Amsterdam, London, Berlin, Newcastle, Tallinn, Naples. In 2012, we were invited to exhibit a radio station at the 30th Sao Paulo Art Biennial. Together with hundreds of guests, we created 100 days of all-consuming transmissions, igniting and rekindling the love for radio as the perfect carrier of artistic ideas. Radio at Love is a curious broadcast production and was made with the support of Sound and Vision, a broadcasting authority of Ireland Fund.